This evening, if you, uh, if you have your Bible before you, if you have it in hand, for a few moments, we'll not spend a long time this evening with the program, but let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, if I may please, to the book of Proverbs, chapter number 11. Proverbs, chapter number 11. We have been, uh, for a few weeks, we have been uh, preaching and teaching on uh, the subject of uh, the issues concerning uh, pride, humility, and brokenness. And uh, we believe the Bible teaches very clearly that uh, we're born with a spirit and an attitude of pride. And for that reason, it, uh, it has to be addressed in a person's life. Well, pride is not something you just can kick off and say, well, I'm not going to be proud anymore. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So from a biblical standpoint, the only way that uh, it can be appropriately and properly addressed is that a person has to be born again. There's nothing in the Scriptures that indicate there's anything good about pride. That's basically true of anything that we who are depraved sinners has. If, if there's nothing good said about it in the Bible, it's pretty evident that we were born with it, that we got it and uh, we've, we've taken it on our, on our, quote, backpacks and we begin to live life with it. So the problem with that is it's not something you can just shed and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's a part of who people are. And uh, the book of Proverbs, I think, pretty well underlines that, that this is not an add-on. This is a, a born with. So if you've been born, and obviously you have, you're sitting here breathing and your heart beating and, uh, and you're alive, that means you came into this world with a whole dose of pride. And the Bible then starts out and deals with it, and what it deals with most of all is for the Christian who should have uh, died to it when they became a believer, but somehow keep hanging on to it. So the first thing is you have to be born again to even address it. You have to be saved by the grace of God. There's a song in our songbook. It's, um, let's see, I think I have it in here, 500 and, uh, page 511. It's a good way to, to begin such a discussion uh, concerning pride and uh, humility and so forth. It's a song written by James Gray. The words are, and Daniel Towner did the uh, music, and uh, it's a song entitled, Only a Sinner. It goes like this. Not have I gotten, and not, of course, old English word means nothing. Nothing have I gotten but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded. Pride I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Once I was foolish and sin ruled my heart, causing my footsteps from God to depart. Jesus had found me happy my case. I now am a sinner saved by grace. And then in verse 3, Suffer a sinner whose heart overflows, loving his Savior to tell what he knows. Once more to tell it, would I embrace, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. The verse that states the case is, that not have I gotten but what I received. And that's talking about the good things. But it can also be said that um, when you came into this world, uh, you were born sinful and you had a sin nature. And the fact is that uh, that has to be addressed, and, and the Bible addresses it. But in the case with pride, it sometimes carries over even for a believer. 
And uh, the Bible then is a death nail to that because there's nothing in the Bible that says anything good about pride. But here in uh, Proverbs chapter 11, and we've covered several verses, but I wanted to conclude with these. uh, And I think I mentioned this the last time we were together. Look at chapter 11 and look at verse number 2. It says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Pride comes, and sooner or later... It's going to produce shame. And uh, the word, as we mentioned it the last, week, last time we were together, uh, brings about the idea that um, you simply have something for which you'll deeply regret. So pride is not, uh, is not something that you think you can just carry for the rest of your life and somehow some good will come of it because you're proud. And so the Bible has, has made it very clear that that's just not going to happen. Look over from where you are in chapter 11. Look over to chapter 15 of Proverbs. Chapter 15 and look at verse number 32. Proverbs 15:32. the Bible says, He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul. But he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. And then verse 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. What it basically is telling you that in the first place, pride keeps us from receiving instruction. When you, uh, when you think you've arrived, when you think you know it all, when you think you don't need anybody telling you how to do something, And yea, verily, you turn around and begin to tell people that you can tell them how to live life and how they can do the right thing. The problem with that is the Bible indicates that uh, that's not going to bring honor. Because honor, as this verse says, the fact is a fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, meaning that you receive it. And as you receive it, in the time you can be found to be honored. And the word and the phrase here indicates that before any kind of true honor, and that's uh, what the word really means, true honor, and that's talking about something beyond man. It's not just some club giving you a plaque. Uh, This is honor that goes way beyond that. So what it says is, and the basic point is, that pride keeps us from receiving instruction. The failure to receive instruction creates a situation where you would never have true honor. And true honor is what the believer ought to be seeking. Then from chapter 15, look over to chapter 18. Chapter 18 of Proverbs in verse number 12. It's as if we didn't get that verse in chapter 15, so he repeats it. Chapter 18, verse number 12 simply says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or proud or arrogant or boastful. And before honor is humility. So again, the emphasis is before man crashes and burns in uh, his arrogance, the fact is that he can locate the problem. It is a, a haughty spirit or a spirit of pride. And when you recognize it and you can begin to deal with it, then it may be that you receive the instruction you should. And in time, you may get real honor, true honor, legitimate honor. Well, those are the words about pride. But to change gears, and uh, this is back to a verse we used before, but it's in First uh, Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. And it's about humility. And verse 5 of 1 Peter 5 says, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And then he uses this phrase. He's talking to believers and he says, Be clothed with humility. The reason is because God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. 
So God just flat out tells you, he said, I am not going to work with a proud person. So here's the deal. You go find me a proud person, and I found you a person who is self-centered, self-living, self-promoting, and, and depending on self to get them through everything. And the consequence of that is the Lord said, I don't have anything to do with that. The word resist means to push back from. It carries the idea that God keeps these people at an arm's reach and says, you know, no, no, I don't deal with proud people. The only way you get the business with God is the business of humility. And that's why in this verse of Scripture, speaking to believers, he simply says to them they are to be clothed with humility. The word clothed in the Greek language means to engirdle. It means to pick up and put on a garment that laborers wore. And um, it was what every Christian is to do. It's to be available for service, and the kind of service rendered was that of a slave. You didn't get paid for it. Uh, you were already owned. And so what your assignments were, you just do what you're told by the master, and you wore the girdle of labor. This is that same phrase. This is the same reference. So he says to every Christian, I want you to first of all understand regarding the master, which is the Lord Jesus, you're a slave. You're a slave. So you have, in essence, you have no rights. Zero rights. Slaves do not have rights. So the first thing is Christian understands they're submitted to the Lord. They have no rights. And that's why it's mercy. Everything you get, every good thing that comes your way is as of the grace and the mercy of God. So we recognize, first of all, we're believers, we're slaves. And that's why Paul called himself that. So he called himself that frequently, faithfully. The second thing about it is that a slave serves without act, you know, acknowledgement. That means to say that uh, Christian communities in, uh, I, I know a few churches that uh, have tended to go to this, where they don't mention any names of anybody who serves in the services. Their intent is that then nobody would get the idea of uh, some sense of pride about getting to do it. So what they quit doing, in fact, an article came across my desk about a week ago, and it simply was this. Nobody's name is mentioned in the church services at all. Nobody. They don't get up and say, now Pastor Henry's going to speak. They don't get up and say, uh, John Doe is going to sing. And they don't get up and say, so-and-so is going to uh, play the instruments. They don't give anybody's names. When they call on one to pray, they just sort of give a motion toward a person, and that person prays. Their whole idea is that, that they don't want to feed what man is prone to get. You know, uh, if he thinks his name being mentioned, there's some glory in that, he may get a little puffed up in pride, and he may feel a little bit special. So this church works doubly hard to make nobody anybody before the Lord. That's the idea of the verse in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. You engirdle yourself as a slave. It becomes the badge of humility. And when you do that, you don't look for anybody to pat you on the back and say, hey, you did a wonderful job washing the feet of these folks who came to visit us. Slaves didn't get that kind of appreciation or even that expectation. So it, this verse is a, is a key factor in the, the New Testament uh, concerning the business of service, and it's one of the great verses that indicates the, the whole business of humility. The bottom line is that you serve 
other people who may be better than you are. It sort of makes you feel humble. For instance, the Lord set the pace when he washed the disciples' feet. You know, I have, uh, I've, never, I've never thought about Peter uh, in a wrong way concerning him saying to the Master, you're not washing my feet. I've thought myself, if I was sitting in a, in a chair and the Lord Jesus Christ was getting up and he took off his towel and he began to get ready to wash feet and I'm sitting here and he brings his basin over to me and his towel and he gets down in front of me and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. I, I have deep respect for Peter saying, you ain't washing my feet. And I know what the Lord said to him, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with you. What the Lord was really telling Peter was, look, if you feel toward me that, that uh, you're not worthy that I wash your feet, I want you to feel that way toward service to everybody else. Oh, oh by the way, it was Peter who wrote 1 Peter 5.5. 5. It comes from his heart. He simply says, clothe yourself with humility just like our Lord did when he got down in front of us and he washed our feet. And we'd say, well, we would never let him wash our feet. Well, you probably would for him to tell you that if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with you. But I think it would be a struggle with your conscience to think, here's the Son of God, the creator of the universe and all that in it is, the one who died on the cross for our sins ultimately and, and pardoned our sin by his own pure, holy, sinless blood. And he's going to wash my feet uh, that'd just be a hard job to take. And I think in Peter's case, I, I respect him saying, uh, he ain't washing my feet. And I concede that when he conceded, um, when he found out that if I don't do it, then you and I are not going to have part with each other, uh, Peter concedes quickly. And then Peter says, not just my feet, but everything else about me. Wash me whole and total and so forth. And the Lord says, uh, I don't have to do that. I just need to wash your feet. I say to you that the whole issue about humility and bringing a person down to that point is one of the great truths about one of the great men of the Old Testament. We'll just have time to introduce you to it, but I want you to see it. Look, if you would, in your Bible to the Old Testament, second book of the Old Testament, book of Exodus, and look at chapter 1. And let me uh, read just a few verses, and let me begin our, some of the things we'll get to in a week or so in our messages from this passage of Scripture. In first chapter of Exodus, in beginning in verse number 8, you uh, have these words. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And verse 9, And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there faileth out any war, or <clears throat> falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Verse 11, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasures, treasure cities of Python and Ramesses, and but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And that is with fervency and, 
And uh, they were slaves, but they were required to serve with a greater diligence and dedication and so forth and so forth. That's what the word is carrying. Verse number 14, they made their lives bitter with bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them to serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the names of one was Ziphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of the midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools where they gave birth, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Verse 22, and Pharaoh charged all of his people, and this is not just the midwives, Pharaoh charges all the people, saying, every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. This is giving somewhat the background uh, after Joseph, the king that knew Joseph, and the one that was over Egypt when Joseph was there, and the story we're most familiar with. And it tells you that after uh, Joseph, there came a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph, didn't care about the uh, Israelites, had no interest in the relationship with them. And so this king comes along and recognizes very quickly that the Israelites are going to overrun them. And uh, it didn't take long to overrun a group of people. America's learning that. That, uh, as I mentioned in the morning service, uh, Islamic people, there are vast numbers of them uh, all across America. And the trouble with that is that they are now pushing Sharia law. They want to change the law of our land uh, to match that which they want. And so just like in Egypt, the Pharaoh in Egypt decided, now, this is what's going to happen. Uh, these slaves... Uh, are going to become the people who are going to make us slaves. And especially if we were to go to war, uh, these folks would join our enemy, and then they would defeat us, and then they'll go on their way. And so they are saying very clearly, we can't have that. So the Pharaoh says, here's the system with which we'll work. Uh, we want to make sure that all the work done is increased, and we'll put a workload on them so badly that when they go home at night, they won't wiggle, they won't move, they won't even be able to walk. We'll work them so hard. Well, the Bible says the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. And that didn't work, so the Pharaoh comes back and says, okay, since we can't get them to stop producing children, what we'll do now is that we'll go back and we will um, have the midwives who go there when they deliver. We'll have them to kill off all the sons. Make sure there are no male children that will live. Well, they tried that, and the midwives were respectful enough and feared God enough that they would not kill the sons. And so by virtue of doing that, it became an issue that uh, Pharaoh decided that uh, we got a problem here, so he calls in the midwives. And they simply said, hey, when we get there, they already given birth. We can't stop that. We can't do anything about that. And it is still in, 
it still infers that we can't, uh, we can't, the, the midwives were not going to kill the sons. It still indicates that. So it would still say it was a direct disobedience. Daniel, I think we better shut this down again. It became very obvious into the Pharaoh that that wasn't going to work, and by that not working, the other thing was that with the midwives not cooperating with him, the next thing it is, he goes to the people themselves, and he says to all the people, if these Hebrews have a child and it's a son, then I'm telling you, you have the right to cast him into the river. You can get rid of him. You talk about vigilante authority. Um, that put every child suspect of being a son with a death warrant over his head. What's important about that to note is that's the setting in which God's person, who he would raise up to deliver Egypt out of the bondage, was born. What he's telling you is that the odds of Moses being born at this time and surviving are extremely low. I mean, the prospects are not good at all. Not only is it the ideal of, of Moses' parents are having and being worked to death to try to stop them from bearing children, and... Uh, it's not only the fact that the midwives saying that, hey, when we arrive, they're already given birth and we can't do anything about that. Even now, we got a third level or a third tier, and Moses could have easily been killed by a neighbor. Somebody who saw them say, hey, they had a son. Let's get him and let's toss him into the river. So in that context, verse number or chapter number two, notice if you would, verse one, there went a man of the house of Levi, took to his wife a daughter of Levi, the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him to be that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him in an ark of bulrushes and daubed with slime, with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood far, afar off to wit what would be done to him. This is just the beginning of what we would call the miraculous working of God. Uh, to raise up a son that would one day become a man, and that man would be the deliverer of, uh, of Egypt. So, uh, next time we're together, uh, I, wanna, I want you to see that it seems quite obvious that Moses was one of the greatest men in all of the Bible. You think about this. As you read the Old Testament, and especially the first five books of uh, Moses, you get the picture very quickly that God didn't even deal with Israel at the beginning apart from Moses. Almost everything they knew, God told Moses and Moses told them. I've hammered uh, for several Wednesday nights on the issue of Leviticus. I believe the book of Leviticus proves the inspiration of Scripture more fully than probably any other solid book in the whole Bible. There's no book in the Old Testament or the New where you have the repeated statement that God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses. And everything God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people and told them, here's what God said, and here's what he wants, and here's how he wants it done. The whole book of Leviticus is just a constant repeating of what God said to Moses that Moses would say to Israel. They never enacted the law. They didn't have even the, the plans for the priesthood. Every single bit of that came from God to Moses to the people. 
Someone wrote this. Is In fact, uh, the very guy who wrote it's name is I.M. Haltman. He, and, and I think he's captured it well. He says, uh, all of God's early dealings with Israel were transacted through Moses. He was the prophet, the priest, and the king, all wrapped into one person. And so united all the great and important functions which later were distributed among a plurality of people. But at the first, Moses did it all. He was treated like a king. He was listened to like a prophet. And the fact of the matter is that he operated like a priest by virtue that he knew more about the priesthood than the priests themselves. He also wrote, he said, The life of Moses presents a series of striking antitheses. He was a child of a slave and Yet he was a son, adopted son of a queen. He was born in a hut, but he lived in a palace. He inherited poverty, and yet he enjoyed unlimited wealth. He was the leader of an army, but he's also the keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors and the meekest of men. He was educated in court, but he dwelt in the desert. He had the wisdom of Egypt and the faith of of a child. He was fitted for the city, but he wandered with Israel in the wilderness. He was tempted with the pleasures of sin, but he endured the hardships of virtue. He was backward in speech, and yet he talked with God. He had the rod of a shepherd and the power of the infinite. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh, and he was an ambassador from heaven. He was a giver of the law and the forerunner of all grace. He died alone on Mount Moab and appeared with Christ in Judea. And no man assisted at his funeral, and God himself buried him. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty um, unique um, resume. And the fact of the matter is, it's just telling us and explaining to us how important this man Moses was. But Moses, and much of what's written in that about Haldeman, is not telling you that he had to go through a period of brokenness. And that's what we'll talk about the next time. I hope you'll be with us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. And as we have been doing on a Sunday evening, uh, we'll have prayer and you'll be dismissed from your pews. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, your grace to us. We thank you for that which we have witnessed this evening and the testimonies that have been given of our young people who have been diligent and dedicated in their work with the Patch Program, Pee Wee Patch and Patch the Pirate. We thank you for the due diligence these young people have shown in fulfilling these responsibilities and obligations. And, Father, I thank you for the teachers and workers with them. I thank you for their giving of themselves and pouring themselves into the lives of these young people. I pray you'll bless them and show them favor for that. Thank you for all the parents who make sure the children get to the programs and they work extra hard to make sure the children do their devotions and work with them in a way that the children will gain things that will not only last for the present but all the way from here to the time they leave this earth. I pray you will bless the word as it goes forth in the hearts and lives of our young people as they have their devotions. I pray that you will change their lives with the truth they read and hear about. I thank you for all the folks here this evening and for their return visit to the Sunday evening services. 
I thank you for the effort they put forth to make that so. And I pray now you'll bless them, give them safety in getting home. I pray you'll give them a good rest and refresh them. And I pray you'll give them a wonderful week, all to your honor and glory and to their good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.